Infants calling Kolob. Come in, Kolob. Infants calling Kolob. Come in, Kolob. This is Kolob. What is wanted? Infants, having been curious and playfully engaged in all things, desire further whatever you got for me by revisiting some of my favorite minisodes in Something Something About a Veil. Keep on listening, then, and your request shall be granted. All for the greater good. It's all about the greater good. The greater good. <laughs> <laughs> Only 19 white shirts over slacks. Tag on a front, book bag on a back. Pair of black socks and a shoe with a hole. The work must go forward, so but stop it. Stop it. They call me on a mission. When I have grown a foot or two. Boogie there, boogie there. Boogie there, boogie there. Infants on Thrones. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and you know, I've really wanted to tell this story for a long time, and maybe I've told bits and pieces of it before, but it's late, and my wife is away, so okay, this is my essay. Thanks for indulging me. The Streaking Samurai. This is not what I thought it was going to be. Those were my exact thoughts as I was handing a Book of Mormon to the outstretched hand of a plastic Colonel Sanders outside of KFC. A pretty common photo gag for super clever missionaries in Japan. The picture with Colonel-san, or Colonel Kyodai, or Brother Colonel, to some of the members in the area who, for one reason or another, believed that the actual Colonel Harlan Sanders, the real-life founder of KFC, was a Mormon, just like them. And for those of you who may also believe this, or at least that KFC was started in Salt Lake City, here's the truth. Kentucky Fried Chicken was started as a roadside restaurant in 1930 in Corbin, Kentucky. Its first franchise location was opened 22 years later in Salt Lake. But it wasn't founded in Utah. Salt Lake didn't have the first KFC. And founder Harlan Sanders was neither a Mormon nor even a real military colonel. But I digress. This was late May 1991, and I was transferring from Kurashiki, my first area in Japan, to Yasufuruichi, a small suburb outside of Hiroshima. Now, I'd been in Kurashiki for all of two months, but I was already chomping at the bit for a do-over. I needed a fresh start. It had been a rough two months that had seen the rapid and aggressive excoriation of my innocent and naive MTC-infused zeal, a figuratively humiliating undressing in front of a dozen basketball-playing missionaries, an even more humiliating literal undressing a few weeks later in an elementary school playground, an obscene and somewhat racist Mexican man, fake excrement on a flushing handle, some apartment keys in the beak of a dead crow, some Van Halen and MC Hammer, endless games of hearts, a tiny bit of backbone, and some sprained and bandaged wrists. All at the hands of the most infamous and elusive 
streaking samurai. But now I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But yeah, it had been a rough two months and I was ready for a change. Now, I guess I should have known that God was playing some kind of prank on me when my MTC district arrived in Japan on April 1st. I was so gung-ho going into the MTC, I wanted to set the world on fire with my testimony of the truth. Because I loved the gospel, the good news that the rest of the world didn't completely understand. I knew that God had a plan for us that was far more grand and expansive than anything that most people could imagine. I knew that we were his children, that we could become like him for reals, and that his work and his glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of us. So we don't have to get all bent out of shape when things go wrong in this world because all these things shall give us experience and Christ atoned for even the worst of sinners to not be damned for eternity. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's way more to God in the universe that has yet to be revealed. So sure, we may not know everything there is to know right now, but look at what we do know. It rocks. Eternal perspective, baby eternal perspective. See, I felt incredibly lucky to know the truth when others didn't, because many are called but few are chosen, and I was chosen. And I wasn't going to be stingy about it either. I was going to devote two years of my life to spreading this gospel, this good news, to my spiritual brothers and sisters, wherever God wanted me to go. And God wanted me to go to Japan. So I would learn their culture, I would learn their language, and I would go and do the things which the Lord commands for. I knew he would prepare a way for me to accomplish his goals for me. And the 103 degree fever that I came down with on the morning that we were set to leave the MTC only confirmed to my mind that I was destined for greatness. Because obviously the devil didn't want me getting on that plane. And he wasn't above striking me down with plague to keep me from the work. But I got a priesthood blessing, and I headed out on a long journey from Provo, Utah to Okayama, Japan, and I picked up two potential converts along the way. Now, I'll never forget that first plane ride from Salt Lake to Los Angeles, and the conversation between Elder Shepherd and the intelligent, articulate, black Baptist pastor lady that he got seated next to. Elder Shepherd. Man, that guy embarrassed the hell out of me. We weren't companions, thank goodness, but we did share a room together at the MTC. And the first day I was there and I met him, I saw this upside-down picture of this long, golden-haired person and his Franklin planner. And I said, is that your girlfriend? And he turned it right side up and I saw, nope, it's just Jesus. Now, I thought that was really funny, but he didn't. Because Elder Shepherd was one of those guys who reasoned that since we shouldn't write letters on any day other than P-Day, that we really shouldn't read our mail on any day other than P-Day either. And he was made our district leader in the MTC and had severely chastised me once for eating a tic-tac on fast Sunday. Now, I took my mission seriously. I was excited about being a missionary, but I wasn't about to become pharisaical about it. Not like this weenie. So there he was on this airplane, sitting next to a woman who so obviously surpassed him in maturity, intelligence, and class, and he was trying to convert her. He pointed to his name tag, to Elder, and for the first time I thought, wait a minute, Elder? 
That means old wise person. Now, even in Japanese, I guess I had learned that the kanji that makes up choro means old wise person. And, you know, this must look really weird and almost sort of fake to someone from the outside. But here's Shepard pointing it out to this woman he's talking to. And he was so proud of it, so proud to be an elder, like it proved something. And I was sitting across the aisle eavesdropping and wishing with all my silent might that he would just shut the hell up. Now, the part of the conversation that I really remember is when she asked him, why aren't women missionaries like you are? And he got so excited by this opportunity to show her how misinformed she was. And he told her all about sister missionaries. And he pointed out the two who were traveling with us, sitting in different parts of the plane, and how they were also allowed to go on missions when they were older if they hadn't found their husbands first. And I thought, did he just say that? That's so embarrassing. And this isn't the gospel. This isn't the good news that I'm fired up to preach. Oh, please shut the ass. then in the LA airport, it all smoothed out because I got to talk to a TSA agent while I was going through security who told me that two missionaries had come to her door and had left a book of Mormon with them, but had never come back and she wanted them to. So I took down her name and her address and her phone number, and I just couldn't wait to give it to my mission president as soon as I got to Japan, just to show him what a convert magnet that God was already turning me into. And then on the flight to Japan, my companion and I gave the first two missionary discussions to a 16-year-old Japanese kid, and we committed him to baptism. So I got his contact info for my mission president, too. Yep, go ahead, devil. Bring on that 103-degree fever. Just try and stop me, because I'll just kneel and I'll pray again on that mysteriously sticky airplane lavatory floor, but... Nothing's going to stop me, man. So this was my mindset as we got to Japan and I met my mission president for the first time. And he pulled us into a room on that first day and, and he sat us down and he asked, what do we think our first priority should be as missionaries? Well, that's easy, I thought. It should be the Japanese people. Nope, nope, nope. It was to ourselves. We had to be true to ourselves, to keep ourselves pure and worthy to be the most effective missionaries possible. Well, I was kind of disappointed by that answer. It seemed really self-serving, and it just seemed so obvious to me, and it was like a waste of time to even consider. Of course we had to be worthy, but it was also that we could convert the Japanese people, right? So, all right, let's get to it already. Priority number two, I got it, the Japanese people, right? Wrong. It was to be true to our companions, to help keep them pure and worthy and yada, yada, yada. Okay, totally redundant here for the same reasons as number one. Stop wasting my time, President. Let's get to the real reason we're here. Number three, the Japanese people? Yes, finally. So, all right, just assign me my companion and let's get on with this already because eight weeks in the MTC is way too long for a missionary like me. Let's go knock on some doors and make some miracles happen. 
because, yeah, did I tell you what my favorite scripture was at the time? Now, this was the scripture that they engraved on my plaque that had my picture on it in the country of Japan that hung on the wall in the hallway of my home ward back in Arizona. It was Alma 17.3. But this is not all. They had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. That was going to be me. I could feel it already. So again, this was my state of mind when I first met Elder SS, a zone leader who was going to be my first companion. He was my trainer. He was the one that the APs really talked up and got me totally excited about. And I mean when I met the real Elder SS, because at first he tried to punk me a little bit on my first day by pairing me up with the other junior companion in the apartment, a guy that we called Led. But I quickly saw that Led was very unzone leader-like. You know, his Japanese was barely better than mine was. And he stopped by a payphone to call his sister in Australia. We weren't supposed to do things like that. And he wouldn't talk to that young Japanese couple in McDonald's when I suggested that we give them my scratch-off coupon as a way to just open the door and begin a friendly but ultimately life-changing conversation with them. Yeah, he just sat there munching on his french fries, watching as I did all the work myself. Now, the real Elder SS, I was certain was a stud, a spiritual giant, a natural leader, a master of Japanese like the APs told me. You know, he was a freaking zone leader for Pete's sake. Which is why I was a little confused when I finally did meet him, for real, and he showed me that wooden kendo sword hanging on the wall and his straw conical rice paddy hat and then he pulled out the Polaroid photo of himself donning both of those two things and nothing else. Yeah, it was a a nude pose, and he was standing outside in midday right in front of our missionary apartment. And he was really, really proud to show this to me. This was his alter ego, who he called the Streaking Samurai. And as he showed me this photo, I'm sure he was watching me and gauging my reaction to it. And in that moment, he sort of knew what he was in for with me. You know, a a naive, ambitious, overzealous greenie. At this stage in his mission was the last thing he wanted. So it was on. A battle of wills. And mine was about to be crushed. Skirmish number one. The Investigator. So, um, Elder Samurai, who are our investigators? Here's the book. Go ahead and look through it. Okay. Uh, who's this Nakatani guy? He comes out to Eikaiwa. What's Eikaiwa? Uh, it's the weekly English class that we teach for service. Really? I didn't know we taught a weekly English class for service. Yeah, there's a lot you don't know. So, has Nakatani taken any discussions? Uh, one or two. Have we called him yet today? What? They said in the MTC that we're supposed to talk to our investigators every day, so have you talked to him today? There's the phone right there. You can call him if you want. But he doesn't really know me yet, so introduce yourself. Uh, My Japanese really isn't all that great. Well, here's a good chance to practice. So I did, and it was lame. It was super, super lame. Well done. Point Samurai. 
<laughs> Skirmish number two, our first P-Day. Now, Elder Samurai played basketball for a junior college before coming out on his mission, and he was pretty good. Now, I wasn't nearly as good, but I was just as competitive, and back home with my friends, well, we'd talk a little bit of harmless, fun-loving smack when we played. So, when Elder Samurai drove the lane and gave me a head fake that I didn't fall for, and then I raised up and swatted a shot away, I gleefully said, well, you were just a little too predictable that time, and... Then the next time when he came down and he juked me out of my shorts for an easy layup, he glared at me and he said, not too predictable that time, was I hot shot? And I don't know, there was something about that glare that told me that this wasn't just fun and games to him like it was to me. So I went down and kind of stopped what I was doing. I apologized. I said, hey man, I was just fooling around. Are we okay? And he just stopped everything and he grabbed the ball and he threw it in my face and he just ripped me a new one in front of all the other missionaries there and he said, no, we're not okay. You are the cockiest son of a bitch I have ever met in my life. And my whole world just kind of like collapsed on me and I was like, oh crap. Oops, I did it again. It happened again. I got too big for my britches, too cocky, pissing people off without meaning to. And I realized I was alone. My stupid mouth has got me in trouble. I said too much again. I had no family around. I had no friends. I didn't even speak the language. I was completely alone in a foreign country with no one to turn to and a senior companion who hated my guts. I felt about as close to rock bottom as I thought I could feel. Brutality. Point Samurai. I will grant you a warrior's death. Skirmish number three. You can't touch this. See, Elder Samurai was actually a really charismatic guy, a, a smart guy, a funny guy, a clever guy, a, a natural leader. And I really, really wanted him to like me. So I decided to chill. You can't touch this. And I really started taking my guard down. Now, there were four of us in this apartment. There was myself, you know, the other junior, Led, who I mentioned before, and he'd been out for about a year. And then there was our district leader, Thuy, who only had about a month or two left before going home. And then, of course, our friendly neighborhood, Streaking Samurai, who had about six months to go and was counting every minute of it. Now, they were all actually pretty good friends, and before I got there, they'd made a habit of playing these nightly card games, something that's not exactly in line with the missionary handbook. Especially when they broke out the boombox and popped in the Van Halen and MC Hammer CDs. But, okay, this did create more group harmony in the apartment. And, you know, I really didn't want to make waves. I wanted to just fit in, right? To watch and learn and make the best of a bad situation. This must be what it's like to be humble. So, okay, we played hearts. And we played a lot of hearts. And I learned how to ditch the bitch and to shoot the moon, and, and I really grew to love it. I even broke down and I bought myself a CD Walkman and a few Beatles rarity CDs, something to help me cope during the long hours inside the apartment when we weren't doing missionary work and when I was tired of studying to pass off my missionary discussions. And the mission rules were already starting to bend, but something had to give, and it wasn't going to be the samurai, so... You know, if you can't beat them, join them, right? Better known in other circles as selling out or succumbing to peer pressure. 
Outstanding. Point Samurai. I will show no mercy. Skirmish number four. The Mexican Man. All right. Okay. Um, now, the samurai, he had something about nudity. You know, there was the whole streaking thing, right? And then he used to love climbing into the other guy's fatones. And these were the sleeping bag type beds that we slept in. And he'd strip down into nothing and he'd ride these fatones all around the floor and shout, I'm naked in your fatone! I'm naked in your fatone! And then, you know, when Thuy would take off his glasses while he was taking a shower and had set him outside in the bathroom, he could never quite find where they went afterwards. And more than once, he'd come out of the apartment and he'd ask, has anyone seen my glasses? And Elder Samurai would walk out of his room with his pants down around his ankles and the glasses held right above his junk and he'd say, oh, your glasses, I'm not sure. Let's ask the Mexican man. Can I please put your glasses on my penis? I just think that would be really funny. Yeah, that samurai was a real practical joker. But I'd been a practical joker, too. I knew how to play the game, and I really, really wanted this guy to like me. So I started pulling pranks on Led, the other junior in the apartment. Like the time I told him that he better look where he's putting his hand when he just preemptively reaches in and turns his head away and flushes the toilet every time he goes into the bathroom. Now, of course, the reason that he did this in the first place was because Samurai also liked making designs out of his own poop. And Led was tired of seeing those designs, so he'd just reach in and flush the toilet, and then he'd look to see what he was doing. But I told him once, you know, if Samurai has no problem touching this stuff himself, he might put a bit of it on the handle, and if you don't look before you reach... Well, of course, I was really only setting him up. I was just planting some seeds because the next day, I took a little bit of Mugi, this cream of wheat type cereal that we were required to eat every morning, and I placed some of it on the handle. And then I told Samurai what I had done, and we gathered together by the door and kind of giggled like little schoolgirls waiting for Led to approach the bathroom and stick his hand in the moogie, and he did, and we laughed, and for that brief moment, things were good. So I tried it again. Uh, this time, Led left his keys in the apartment door, something that he would have grilled any of the rest of us for doing. So I took them and slipped them into my pocket and figured an opportunity would eventually present itself for me to use them somehow. And it did, in the form of a dead crow that we passed on the side of the road after our district meeting. So when Led went to check the mail that afternoon, instead of finding another letter from his girlfriend back home, which he got almost daily and annoyingly rubbed in our face every single time, he found a dead crow with his lost keys in its beak. Not my brightest shining moment, but not nearly as bad as the night that we hosted an unofficial unapproved zone meeting. Ten missionaries crammed into a small two-bedroom apartment. Because Samurai was kind of like the leader of this clique of cool guys. It was kind of like our mission's answer to the Gadiant and robbers. That's what I thought, at least. And, and these cool guys all thought that the streaking Samurai was just about the coolest guy ever. So what did they suggest that we do when everyone got together? Let's go streaking! So, late that night, seven cool missionaries left the apartment a little after midnight, violating far more than Rule Mission 72. And three nerdly missionaries, they chose to stay behind. 
But the seven cool ones, they went to a nearby elementary school, and they took turns streaking back and forth across the playground. At one point, all of them climbed into one of those mesh net climby thingies and took a picture of seven super cool, anonymous, bare-white asses that circulated through the underground of our mission as the sex pit photo. Yeah, I had sort of sold my birthright here. You know, not for a bowl of porridge, but for a frigging sex pit photo in the hope of fitting in with the cool guys, which I never had any real chance of doing anyway. I was nothing at this point but a sellout and a fool, and I sort of hated myself for it. Impressive. Point Samurai. I'm so pretty. Skirmish number five, Dunkin' Donuts. So I started my first documented repentance process, the first of many I went through on my mission, making a chart to become 100% obedient every day, where if I couldn't get out and work, I would at least study as hard as I could to pass off the discussions and become a senior companion so that I could decide when we worked instead of being at the mercy of a charismatic burnout. Because I really still wanted to work. I wanted to do what I came on my mission to do. And one day, I actually got the opportunity to do it. Samurai took Thuwe out on a split to go to some leadership conference the next city over, which actually turned out to be a bogus excuse. They really just went to a bowling alley all day. But that left me and Led on our own. And we'd both been grumbling about how much we really wanted to get out and do some actual missionary work, so we took the opportunity to do it. We knocked on doors, we stopped people at the train station... And we had a ton of fun doing it. We felt really good about ourselves. This was why we had come on our missions. But we arranged to meet our senior companions later that night at Dunkin' Donuts. And uh, now this Dunkin' Donuts, it had a video laser disc jukebox thing that showed some great videos from back home. You know those three girls from that Bobby Brown video, Every Little Step You Take? Yeah. So we actually spent more time at Dunkin' Donuts than we really ever should have. And, you know, that day was especially hard because Led and I had been on a roll. And now we were back with our senior companions and we just sat there watching the video jukebox for 45 minutes. Nobody saying a word. Nobody budging at all. Until finally I stood up and said, well, I'm going to head out and do some work. Who wants to come with me? And Samurai, he just glared at me and he said... Why don't you go out by yourself? And this time I didn't even flinch. Fine, I will. And I did. And then Led followed behind me, and I struck up a conversation with the first Japanese guy that I bumped into outside of Dunkin' Donuts. And as we talked with him, Samurai and Thuy got on their bikes and rode away, and I watched as Samurai turned his head over his shoulder and just shot lasers at me with his eyes as he rode off. He was pissed. But so was I. And when we got back to the apartment... Thuy quickly grabbed me and he pulled me into the study and he said, you know, you better give your companion some space. He's not in the best mood right now. And I said, I don't care if I never talk to him again. He can do whatever he wants. I don't care. All right, said Thuy. Well, I better go talk to Led before he does something stupid. And that's when we heard, what are you looking at? And then Led said, well, I just don't think it's right that the rest of us should walk around on eggshells anytime you're in a bad mood. And then we heard the slam of the dresser being thrown down to the floor and samurai storming out of the apartment. So 
Fooey chased him down and he found him a few blocks away, taking his frustrations out on an old refrigerator that some of our Japanese neighbors had thrown out for the garbage. And he sprained his wrists, punching them so hard, and he wore bandages on his hands for the next two weeks while I stayed with lead and I let Fooey handle samurai. And then I finally got my long-awaited reprieve and my transfer to Yasu Furuichi. Point. Me. Tastes like chicken. Which brings us back to my transfer day. In front of that KFC, saying our fake goodbyes with our fake plastic missionary name tags, displaying our fake titles as fake elders, and smiling our fake smiles to snap a staged photo of us handing a fake historical record of a fake American civilization to this fake plastic Colonel Sanders. Now, we tried to have some kind of a heart-to-heart, and I told him what was on my mind, that this is not what I thought this mission was going to be. And he laughed, and we contemplated standing at the pulpit for our missionary return talk to the ward, and warning all the future young missionaries what to really expect when they go out into the mission field. Which, I guess I'm sort of doing right now. Not over the pulpit, of course, but via podcast. Which leads me to... Skirmish number six. The last battle. Because, yeah, this all happened 23 years ago. And just like my mission didn't turn out like I expected, well, neither has my life. You know, I grew up thinking that I'd be a lawyer like my dad, like Matt, like Scott. Maybe a stake president with a big house and a big Mormon family. A shining example of stalwart righteousness and worldly success to everyone around me. That's the path I thought I was on. But, well, it didn't quite turn out that way. And I can't help but think that those first two months of my mission had a lot to do with that. It sort of broke me, in a way. But not necessarily for the worse, because I went from being, quite legitimately, the cockiest son of a bitch that most people had ever met in their lives to becoming someone who today, I hope, is much more introspective, considerate, thoughtful, reflective, self-aware, fair-minded, patient, and ultimately, free to see the church for what it is and for what it was in my life. A great place to learn the values of charity and service and forgiveness and other really good life lessons, but not necessarily an organization with all the answers that it pretends to have. And Certainly not any organization worthy of my unquestioning obedience. Not a group of men with divine stewardship over my life to whom I should simply defer in all things. So after this last great skirmish, who's the one still standing? Because, yeah, my life's not what I expected it would be. I'll never be a stake president. I've been through a divorce. I have clearly left the church, but can't just seem to leave it alone. And I violated almost every taboo I swore I'd never even allow myself to get close to. Well, okay, maybe not every taboo. But what about the streaking samurai? What ever became of that guy? I want you to know how much I love this place. Not only do I get to teach here and associate with all of you, I also got a great education here. And the best thing that ever happened to me happened on this campus. Her name is Bonnie, and she's seated right behind me on the stand. We actually attended several devotionals together when we were students, and I think we even held hands. As a matter of fact, I'm sure of it because I don't remember a single thing any of the speakers ever said. Well, believe it or not, 
Elder Streaking Samurai is now a religion professor at BYU-Idaho. He's probably teaching a group of students some faith-affirming, whitewashed version of the Doctrine and Covenants right this very minute. And according to his online reviews, he's apparently an easy A who brings a lot of humor into the classroom, which doesn't surprise me. He was a funny guy. And according to one review, he just radiates the Savior's love. I'm sure he does. Just don't let him anywhere near your glasses. So in the final analysis, who wins? Well, I'm sure he'd say that he does because, you know, He's got the temple recommend, he's got the churchy job, and he repented of his streaking ways. But seriously, a religion professor at BYU-Idaho? Could there be a worse hell? Point me. So yeah, it may not have been exactly what I expected, but I have a pretty great life. I have an amazing wife who quite thankfully, would have been rather repelled by that gung-ho, overzealous missionary version of me. And I have a nice, big, sorta, kinda Mormon family. My house is, well, it's small for five kids, but it's comfortable. And I have a great job that lets me travel all over the world and meet different people from different backgrounds with different perspectives. And all that has had such an impact on how I see myself in the world. Not as a knower of secrets and a harbinger of truth, but as one of many who has a lot to learn from everyone. And life is just so much better that way. So I guess, after all said and done, my mission president was right after all. It really did turn out to be about me, and I'm pretty okay with that. And guess what? All these things really were for my experience. Anyone for the closing prayer? So